So let's go ahead and get started. Thanks again for coming, for being here early in the morning on a Saturday. When I know that when your alarm went off, you were you 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 actually thought about not coming. I know it. And uh, yeah, we won't talk anymore about that. Um, let's see. Oh, a big thanks this morning to Eric and Sarah Martin who made two dump truck load full of eggs. That was excellent. Very good. Eric paid a high price to do that. He burned himself at least twice while I was standing there watching. <laughs> he was cooking them right over there and you know it's early in the morning and things are hot and your your brain is a half step behind. That was delicious. And, and then um, Kevin, your girlfriend's name, where are you Kevin? What, what's her name? Alexis. Alexis made a dump truck load full of muffins. <coughs> and then and then Craig just comes in and, and is the bad guy and, and brings <laughs> some donuts too. So <laughs> those are like the, the nicest looking donuts I've ever seen though. Um, so yeah, thank you guys very much. And I, again, I'm just, there's never been a year before where people wanted to feed each other so much and so well. Uh, you set a very high standard. Um, so thank you. Um, also, when we uh, today when we break for small groups, we have we have the quilters coming in after us, um, which means that we need to be out of here before nine. I love it. This is just great. <laughs> but you don't want to make quilters upset. And uh, <laughs> so what we're going to do is when we break before we go to small group, we're just going to get out of the room completely. Um, so that we can uh, just, it'll just be done for them. And so what we'll need to do at the break, um, when we're done being in First Timothy 1, is we'll need to, I've got a little um, diagram for the room, we'll just need to get all the food out, and we'll just take the food out um, into the hallway somewhere, we'll put a table out there, and um, uh, take some of these tables down and set the, some other tables up for them just to help them out and serve them, and, and um, that, will, that will make them very happy. And, when you have happy quilters, everybody else is happy. So, um, very grateful for the hospitality of, of Gethsemane. Um, you can be praying because I'm, I'm, I'm guessing we're probably within probably six months of maybe having a um, being able, needing to be someplace else. Um, and um, so, just be praying. You know, just pray for Mike Caruso who's our deacon. He sent me an email late last night that he's you know, working on some things and looking at whatever's available out there. And, and the exciting thing is, is that we're actually at a, at, at a point with you know, the commercial market crashing and our facilities fund steadily going up that it's actually not that far off anymore, um, which is really encouraging. Um, so whether we, you know, the most important thing is we wanna make a decision that is, is a healthy, financial decision for the church, and if that means we need to rent a little bit more with an affordable rent, that's what we're going to keep doing. Uh, we're not going to get into a mortgage that's going to make us a slave in ways that, you know, is bad by any means. So um, <clears throat> just be praying. And um, God is always, God loves this church more than, than I do, than you do, than we all do to put together. And he has cared for this church um, in the face of great adversity, and he'll keep doing that. We trust. And uh, it's going to be exciting to watch and see what happens. So, anyway, let's um, let's talk about your uh, your quote. 
that I gave to you. <clears throat> we came across this in, um, the elders did in a Jeremiah Burroughs <clears throat> sermon. Jeremiah Burroughs, I think this sermon was preached in 1645. Oh, we don't have any more of those? I'll give you mine. Oh, th- 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 is anybody else missing? Is that an extra one? Anybody else need one that didn't get one? We printed just about the right amount. Um, this might take a little bit of explaining because the way that he thinks about lust might not be the, the first thought that comes to your mind about your lust. So <coughs> let's see if we can get back into 1645 and see what he's thinking. He says, We must take heed that we do not subject the worship of God unto our lusts. You are far from sanctifying God's name and worshiping him who subject his worship to your base lust. What he means is that you, would, um, that you would take worship of God, sanctifying his name, setting his name apart as, as uncommon and holy, that you would take that act of worship and that you would make it have to be under your desires, okay, your lusts. Not just you know, immoral sexual lust, just, but just your base desires. I'm going to take my worship of God and I'm going to make it be the servant under my desires. And then he says, you will say, well, who does this? Who is the man or where is he that will do this who will subject the worship of God to his base lusts or desires? <coughs> and then the whole rest of the sermon is a description of the, of the men who do this. And here's just one of them. Whoever makes use of any duty of worship, such as prayer, so you could be worshiping God in prayer, you could be worshiping God hearing the word, you could be, or whatever it may be, to cloak any kind of wickedness. Whoever is conscious of any secret wickedness and yet shall think to cover it by the performance of duties, of worship duties like prayer and hearing the word, that one shall reason in this manner. Well, who will think me to be guilty of such a vile thing when I pray as I do and I am so careful to hear the word? I hope I shall cover some wickedness this way. You understand? That's what he means by taking it. And now we're going to, worship doesn't exist as for just worship. Worship is now a tool that I'm going to bring and I'm going to submit it under my desire to keep this secret sin. In fact, my worship of God will help serve in the deception of others. And I'm okay. Because I'm worshiping God, see? I'm praying. Do you hear me? Do you hear how I pray? Do you see how I'm at church all the time and how I take notes and how I'm, I'm interested? You, you see? All the while, hoping that people will see that and go, he's a worshiper. And then he's taken his worship and he has submitted it under his base fleshly desires. That's what he means. You understand? And that terrifies me. Because I see what's in my own heart. And there's not one man in this room that this does not touch close to home on. Um, this, this touches every man who has been born again. And praise God that your salvation and mine rests on promises from God, not our promises to Him. Right? You and I are saved by grace. We are saved by a God who takes wicked men and He turns them into His children. And we pull stuff like this periodically, maybe sometimes often, 
maybe for seasons of life in a, in a, in a way that we shouldn't. Uh, and there's still grace towards us to cleanse us and to renew our minds and truth to sanctify us and we can continue to pursue God by His grace. So, with that in mind, and I hope appropriately so humbled by such a thought like that, let's, let's pray. And then we'll be in God's Word together in 1 Timothy 1. Father in heaven, we, we have had our eyes open to see your greatness. Um, you have given us new eyes. We are very much like Paul, who had scales on his eyes at one point, and then they fell off. And with a new set of eyes, we can now see. The eyes of our heart have been enlightened, and we can gaze upon you and see something of you from your word, what you reveal of yourself. And the greatest thing that we could do with, with those new eyes is we could work, we should worship you, and we should love you with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. And God, that should be above, that worship of you in that way should be above everything else. Every other thought, every other deed, every other desire, every passion, and yet we would confess to you this morning that maybe even this week um, we have taken that lofty thing of worship of you and we have submitted it and subjected it under our base desires to maybe cover up a sin. Lord, we're capable of such things like that. That's what this flesh does. That's what indwelling sin will do every day if given the opportunity between now and the day we die or the day you return. And so, God, what we plead for is we, we, we remind ourselves and we preach to ourselves first your grace. That we got into this relationship with you on the basis of grace, not on the basis of, of good works or deeds that we did in righteousness. But we got into it according to your mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. And we remind ourselves again that grace can come and, and continue to sanctify us and cleanse us and grace has appeared uh, instructing us to deny ungodliness and, and teaching us to put on um, obedience. And Father, so we this morning want to preach the gospel to ourselves um, because we are men who are very capable of <coughs> subjecting worship of you to our base lusts. <coughs> God, please meet with us this morning and remind us with First Timothy 1 of maybe some things that we've known and um, we just need to be reminded maybe there's some things here that we've never seen yet that we have to see that we must never forget and um, Lord I pray that you would help us to see what happens when good men stray in their hearts from you in the church and um, help this to sober us and help it to also encourage us that the things that we're talking about in terms of shepherding our hearts are, are good things the right things to be thinking about. Things, uh, these are disciplines that if um, centered on the gospel and, and um, spirit-driven, Lord, can, can, can save us from all kinds of heartache and discipline. We can save the church from deception. <coughs> so Lord, meet with us this morning and use this morning to uh, glorify you. Use it to strengthen Grace Bible Church. Use it to protect Grace Bible Church, and use it to build us up into the men that we need to be for your glory. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.
Before we jump into 1 Timothy, I want you to turn your notebook over, though, and I want you to remember with me the, the, the uh, what are they? Oh, yeah, the build disciplines. You, wanna, you need to remember those. Number one, discipline number one on the heart. What are we trying to focus on there? We need to recognize that we must shepherd our hearts. I was sharing with a, a friend of mine who's... Um, interviewing for a, a church pastor position and he wants to think about leadership development and I was talking to him about what build was and it was just so refreshing to kind of walk back through all these disciplines even yesterday afternoon at 3.30 and, and remind myself, yeah, these are this is why we do what we do. This is why I want to focus on these disciplines and never forget them. Um, never graduate from them. But um, discipline one on the heart. God over and over in scripture addresses the heart um, and we want to engage with God in his word about what he says about the heart um, so that we can see him, we can know him, so that we can understand the conditions of our hearts um, both before Christ and after Christ, that we've been given a new heart that has new desires. <coughs> and, um, and so we want to be focusing on the heart. You must shepherd your heart. If, you know, it's not an automatic thing, uh, shepherding your heart. Uh, it's not automatic. It is like pushing a ball uphill. If you stop, it isn't going to go uphill. And if you move away from it, it's going to roll downhill. It's not going to stay where it was. It's going to go in the wrong direction. And so you must recognize that and come to grips with that and, 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 and discipline yourself with God's strength and grace to make sure that that doesn't happen. That you keep pushing and you keep pushing and you keep pushing. Um, when you are that kind of a man who is concerned about his heart and that you want to meet with God in his word, the first place, the first people who should feel that impact are the people that you live with. Whether it's a wife, kids, parents, roommates, those people need to feel that. They need to sense from you that as they are in your presence, in your home, that this man is a, he's a, he's a man after God's own heart. He's a man of God. And um, so you want to make sure that you're shepherding your household well as well. And then you're ready to step into the lives of people in the church, discipline three, the ministry. Um, that's the kind of man you want to have step into the church and care for people as a man who is shepherding his own heart and who is caring for people in his house. He's not playing leapfrog over his heart. And he's not playing leapfrog over his family or his household just to get to the Bible study or just to get to the small group, or just to get to the teaching opportunity, or to get to the preaching opportunity, um, that man is a disaster waiting to happen. And you'll see that in 1 Timothy 1 today. Um, and then we focus in Discipline 4 on qualifications, and we spent our last two times together talking about deacon qualifications. And um, we want to encourage you to strive towards that, to be pursuing that. And the handout I gave you last time on praying through the the deacon qualifications. I hope you guys will be working on that and, 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 and prayerfully coming before God in, in regards to those qualifications. And then um, discipline five is a catch-all category where we can address anything of a biblical, theological, practical matter. Uh, and uh, we'll do that in our last two. Guys, we don't have a whole lot of build sessions left. I don't know if you've noticed if you look at your calendar. Um, I think there's after today, what is it? Does anybody have their calendar? Three more maybe? Five more? Four, five. Oh, maybe there is. But the, the gray bar is um, Shepherd's Conference, isn't it? Four. Four, four more after today. 
Today's the yeah, four more. Four more. <coughs> on Ephesians five, and then we'll do um, a couple others there. So, um, anyway, for biblical, theological, practical, we're going to spend our last two of the year on that uh, in that category, and what we're going to choose to cover in, the, in, in those two is, is hermeneutics. Um, how do you interpret the Bible? What are the, what's the wrong way to interpret the Bible? What's the right way to interpret the Bible? And what are some principles that we want to hang on to as we do that? And I think that's going to be really encouraging for you and also be a massive teaser uh, for H3. Um, um, just in regards to that, look, we don't set these things up as hoops to jump through um, that merely just as hoops to jump through like if hey if you know if you want to be in H3 you know you got to do this that's not what we're mainly after I mean we're mainly after this just so that you're the man of God you need to be but yes it is also equally true that if you want to invest in H3 and have H3 and invest in you and you want to get some theological training you need to do well here okay um, so make sure that you do well here um, and so Discipline six, then finally, is, is the, the biblical vision and the gospel purpose of the church. We'll do that, cover that one time before the year is finished as well. Okay? Um, all that to say with discipline six is that hopefully uh, disciplines one, two, and three, and four, and even five would work at any church that you would be at because this is what you should be no matter where you're at. But you, you're not just anywhere. You're at Grace Bible Church, and we want you to understand what the, what the biblical vision of, of Grace Bible Church is and what the gospel purpose is for this church. And so it's important for you to be exposed to that. So any questions or comments on that? Yes, sir. Can I ask a question about the schedule? Yes, please. We're sure it's the 27th and not the 20th? Oh, for February. Correct, yeah. Um, we just a correction. We are not meeting on the twentieth, February twentieth. Our next meeting will not be February twentieth. Thank you so much, Daniel. Appreciate that. We pushed it back to the twenty seventh, and I'll make sure that the email goes out to you of that week saying don't show up, and then I'll send another one out that says for the next week make sure you come for then. Okay, but you guys got that? No meeting on Saturday the twentieth. Um, it'll be Saturday the twenty seventh. Yeah. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. All right, let's open up our Bibles to 1 Timothy 1. And again, get up and get down, you know, move wherever you need to go as we go through um, 1 Timothy 1 and, and look at this passage. I um, read 1 Timothy 1, this passage, uh, last year sometime. And I, um, whenever I see the word heart, I always pause in Scripture and I look at it because I'm always thinking also that, hey, maybe this might be something that we need a, a passage to look at um, in regards to build. And I saw this passage and I thought, oh, I need, to, I need to get a better sense of what this passage is saying. And so last summer, um, I decided I was going to incorporate it into this year's build because I hadn't used this passage before. And I was speaking at a retreat uh, in, over Labor Day in, in California for another church, and I decided I was going to prep it for them, and then it would just be done for the year, and then I could, you know, work it into our schedule. And as I was even um, going back over it again this this week, I thought, you know, it, it's very likely, it's it's possible that I, I may even preach this from the pulpit because um, in the next within the next month, because oh my goodness, um, this is this is amazing. Um, and what is going on in all places, of all places, Ephesus. Who planted the church in Ephesus? The Apostle Paul. How many years was he there? 
probably at least two. Probably not three, but at least two. Um, so they got the benefit from um, a letter prior to this <coughs> called Ephesians. And they've got big trouble. And it is precisely because men have strayed in their hearts. And uh, boy, this is a, it's the right passage for us to be in. So I want to start by way of introduction by, by asking you just this question. What if I don't shepherd my heart to God in his word? What if I don't? What if, what if I admit to myself and say, you know what, I haven't actually been doing that for, for days. I haven't been shepherding my heart to God in his word for weeks. Maybe even months. And when I look around me and some of the other guys I'm around, it doesn't appear that I'm that far off track from them. So I mean, so, so what if I haven't been shepherding my heart? I mean, is it really that big of a deal? <clears throat> Let's read um, verses 3 to 7 in 1 Timothy 1. <clears throat> Paul says to Timothy, he says, As I urged you, Upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love. Love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men, here it is, straying from these things. What are the, these things that they are straying from? A pure heart, and a good conscience, and a sincere faith. These men straying from these things, they have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. <coughs> this passage tells you this morning, tells me this morning, what the big deal will be if you and I fall into an endless cycle of neglecting your heart and my heart. This tells you what will happen in the church if men stray from a pure heart. Paul had to deal with this whole problem in a church, not that some other knucklehead planted, but that he planted. He had to deal with this in a church where he spent at least two years with. No other church recorded in, in Acts had the Apostle Paul there that long. The next one in line is Corinth. And look at the trouble he had in Corinth. And like that doesn't reflect on Paul, that reflects on man, on, on the condition of man. There were men in the church who had looked like all the rest who responded to the gospel. These men responded to the gospel just like everybody else who responded to the gospel. That's the way it looked. In fact, these men in Ephesus, they looked better than the rest because they became leaders in the church. These men did. They became teachers in the church. They were like the cream that rises to the top. 
In fact, he met with these guys when he was passing through on his way to Jerusalem. Keep your hand on 1 Timothy. Go back to Acts chapter 20. He met with these men. I don't know if he knew them. He obviously knew them. He spent two years with them. I don't know if this was the Spirit of God or just his own observations from their life or from as he was with them or both. But he met with these guys and he talked to these very guys about this. Look at verse 28. Be on guard for yourselves. Guys, watch each other. He's talking to the elders of the church. He's not talking to the church in general. He called for the elders. He's in Miletus. They come down to the, to the shore and he meets with them there and he says, guys, you've got to guard yourselves and be on guard for the whole flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Because I'm reminding you, this is not your church. You didn't pay the price to make this. God did, and he paid with the price of his blood son. His blood son. His son's blood. It's early for me too. And watch what he says. I know. I know this. After my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, and they won't spare the flock. And watch this, from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one of you. He says, I went from house to house. I did it in public back in verse 20, right? I solemnly testified of the gospel to you. Paul talked to these guys. They had a warning from Paul. He, this was his church he planted. He was there for two years, more than he was anyplace else. He warned them specifically. And some of these men failed to shepherd their own hearts, and the church was getting clobbered. All within a period of four years. Acts 20 to 1 Timothy is probably a period of four years. He's probably in prison for... Um, up to four years, and when he was released from that prison um, sentence in which he wrote Ephesians, he immediately um, made his way towards Ephesus and met up with Timothy there, and then he had to leave for whatever reason, and Timothy was urged to stay. So within a matter of four years, this is what's going on. Obviously, these men, yeah. Um, sorry. That's good. Uh, as far as like what they used then to shepherd their hearts, I mean, we have the New Testament now that they use in the Old Testament scriptures? Or? Mainly. Okay. But they would also remember what um, Paul taught. Because, I mean, when he's exhorting Timothy, he's saying, you know, retain the sound words. And he's talking about not just the words from the Old Testament. He's talking about what I taught you. If you read 2 Timothy 3, he's saying, um, in fact, I want you to turn there real quick. Verse 10 of 2 Timothy 3, you followed my teaching. Right? And my conduct and purpose, faith, patience, love, all those other things as well. Verse 14, however, continue the things you have learned and become convinced of them, knowing from whom you have learned them. I mean, he, he taught Timothy the sound doctrine that was given to him, the, what I would say, what we're going to get to here, the administration of the mystery, the, the house law for the church. He taught that. Did he write it down in other ways? I don't know. But we also know that he had letters and he expected them to be circulated and were they at this time being circulated? Probably not yet. But yeah, they had to rely on the, on the, the Old Testament mostly. Um, it's a good question. So that's what they, yeah, get that. The early church had to shepherd its heart with the Old Testament. That is a rebuke for us. 
Don't be afraid to shepherd your heart with the Old Testament. Right? Remember how many times the heart is mentioned in Deuteronomy? 45 times. Remember how many times it's mentioned in Ezekiel? 31. You know how many times it's mentioned in 2 Chronicles? I think like 37. Don't be afraid. God wants to talk to you about your heart in the Old Testament. We can go there. It's okay. Um, but obviously these men in Ephesus, they didn't get there overnight. It was a process. And that is the point that I, I want you guys, I want us to, to grab a hold of today, is that it's a process of straying from your heart. Whenever somebody says you were straying or you make, yeah, he strayed away, you're immediately saying it didn't instantaneously happen overnight. Straying is a kind of a wandering thing that takes place over time. There are degrees of distance that you cover over time that moves you down the road from shepherding your heart. These men at one point might have said, you know, I haven't been shepherding my heart for days, weeks, maybe even months. And you know what? I look at the other elders in the church and I don't seem to be that far off track. And after all, I mean, I'm a leader in the church. My, I'm interested in being a teacher of the Old Testament. I want to be a teacher of the law. And so the first question that you have to ask yourself over and over and over every day is the right question. That is, am I shepherding my heart to the Word of God to meet with the God of the Word? That's the first question to ask yourself. If the answer to that question that day is no, there's a second question you must ask yourself. And it is this question. How far down the road have I gone on this? How many days has it been like this? How many weeks has it been like this? How many months has it been like this? You have to ask yourself, have I been straying for time? How far has my heart strayed? Some men straying from these things, is what Paul says. Now, this is, um, this is, this is heavy, and I, I wanna remind you of some encouraging things at the front, set, at the front part here at the outset. Um, in regards to Christ. Jesus had some really amazing disciples and who were also very, very stubborn and slow. These men, especially Peter, the ringleader of them all, he made big promises. He made big promises, and his biggest promises came on the night before Jesus died and saying, I don't know, all the rest of these guys on this table, they might flee from you. I'm not going to. I'm, I'm, I'll be at your side, and he's even ready to pull the sword out and, and start whacking ears off uh, and things like that. But remember Jesus, remember his patience towards these men. Remember? Peter is devastated once he sees that what Jesus said would happen in regards to him denying him three times. He was devastated. In fact, he was so devastated in the end of John, um, he says, I'm going fishing. He hadn't fished for three years. And what he's saying is, I'm, I'm, I think I'm so far gone that it'd probably just be best if I went back to fishing. And being the leader that he was, he led some other disciples with him. They said, well, we'll go too. So it's not even on Peter's mind that, you know, I need to, I, I got to go get back where I need to be. Who has to show up on the beach to get him? The resurrected Lord. And what does he say to him? Three times. He gets right to the heart of it. Do you love me? He doesn't say, look, are you going to stop being a knucklehead now? 
<laughs> are you going to read your Bible every day now? Are you going to are you going to are you going <clears> to <throat> go to church more now? Get some accountability, man. What does he say first? Let's just get right to the foundation. When I called you to myself and I changed you, this is all about love. Do you love me? And it took him, um, look, Peter strayed. He wandered. And it was bold sin. Bold sin. And I guess I don't care how boldly you sin. If you are in Christ, Christ will come get you. That's the way he is. He'll come find us where we stray. So I want to comfort you with that. I want you to remember that. But I also want you this morning to let 1 Timothy 1 stand as a warning to you and to me, to all of us. If you don't shepherd your heart, guys, if you won't shepherd your heart, you, listen carefully, if you won't shepherd your heart, you may find yourself in leadership in a church. You can. Okay? And you may find yourself on the receiving end of a church's battle against you and your teaching. Do you understand that's what's happening here? There are men in Ephesus who find themselves as the bullseye of the Apostle Paul and Timothy. You stop these men. These men were just like you and me. They didn't shepherd their hearts. They strayed from a pure heart. And now they find themselves being opposed by none other than the Apostle Paul and Timothy. You can find yourself on the receiving end of a church's, church's battle against you and your teaching. So I think it's good for me. I think it's good for you. I think it's good for us to imagine in this passage what that would be like for me. To have a church assembled against me because I strayed in my heart and I'm starting to teach weird stuff. Not from the Book of Mormon. From the law, from the Bible. That could be the horrific place we end up if we don't shepherd our hearts. Here's what this passage is all about. The battle against the heart strayers requires three tactical maneuvers that come from Paul here to recover the church, to rescue the church. Here's the first one. Stop the teaching of the heart strayers. Stop the teaching of the heart strayers. That's what we find in verses 3 and 4. Look what Paul says. He says, I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia. Remain on at Ephesus. Verse 3. So upon... Paul's release from prison in Rome, from which he wrote, um, he, in that imprisonment, he wrote Ephesians. He then sailed for Ephesus. He visited Colossae, as, as far as we know, as he promised in Philemon, when he wrote Philemon as well. Um, and then most likely he returned to Ephesus, where he met Timothy, who was coming there from Philippi. And evidently they had a short bit of time together there. And something dangerous has happened in Ephesus at the leadership level. And now the church is in danger. And the language implies that Paul and Timothy already talked about it. As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus. It, it implies that they had already talked about this problem. And now the charge that had been given orally to Timothy back then has now become black on white. Pen on paper. Some people think in, in 2 Timothy that um, Timothy is weakened in this. Uh, maybe that he prefers a different arrangement. I, look, I don't want to stay here, Paul, at Ephesus. I want to leave. 
And, and so what Paul's saying is, no, you, I urged you to stay. Remain there. Um, then maybe he had been there for a time and now he just wants to be released from his duties. It could be that Paul is simply writing not to urge a, a weak Timothy to stay, but he might be writing to give him actually written apostolic authority. <coughs> backing. It's interesting. Most likely... Paul had done the hard work earlier, the harder work earlier when he was there with Timothy. You say, well, what was the harder work? Drop down to verse 19 of chapter 1. Now, let's back up, verse 18. This I command, uh, this command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight of faith, keeping faith and a good conscience which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, he names them, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. It's very likely that these are two of the guys. It's very likely that these are two elders. If not elders in the church of Ephesus, that he was on the beach with at Miletus, there are two leaders who have come up in the ranks. It's very likely that Paul was there first and he named them to everybody. And he rebuked them and he handed them over to Satan. I mean, that's how far gone they were. And now, Timothy was to use, with the writing of this letter, the full weight of Paul's apostolic authority in dealing with all of the rest who might be still contemplating doing the same thing that those two guys did. So if the charge had been oral to Timothy and it remained oral, most likely the only one who heard it was Timothy. And so now Timothy would go around and say, well, look, Paul told me, you guys need to knock it off. And they could say, look. yeah, Bill. Sorry, that expression, to hand them over to Satan, yeah. is that kind of like in church discipline, how you treat them as a Gentile and tax collector? So he you know, essentially kind of put them out of the church. Yeah, he did. And with, um, with when you get to situations like that with false teachers, you the, the church discipline process is rapidly accelerated. Mm-hmm. Uh, false teaching is is um, is is very um, it needs to be dealt with immediately. Um, yeah, it's a good question. Um, so what is going on here, in my opinion? is that now everyone knows he has apostolic authorization because he's got the letter in his hand. <coughs> and he's commissioned by the Apostle Paul to end the heart strayer's teaching. So it reinforces Timothy's authority and um, most likely opposition to Timothy was intensifying. It was getting more difficult. And the whole letter of Timothy now become, to Timothy becomes an enlargement of Paul's earlier um, teaching instruction to Timothy. Matt. Um, I was going to say, could you also say, going, building on that point, like because of the, the stuff that Paul says in here, do you think that Timothy would already know the qualifications for elder yeah. and how people would, should act in the household of God? Yeah. So like, why would Paul write the same thing to him in the letter? Yeah, that's good. Timothy already knew. Yeah, if he already knew and had been instructed in that way, this is just helpful. It's interesting what the Spirit's doing. Oh, sorry, we've got a maze. It's tough to get through here. <laughs> when you go that way, it's like, oh, that's a, that's a dead end. Yeah, that, 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 that. Um, 
Yeah, it's it's interesting what what's going on and that what's leading Paul to write and, and the Spirit of God using that to to you know preserve for us that no, this needs to be on paper. The church needs this on paper. It needs it on papyrus. It needs it on vellum. It needs it on something that it can hang on to. So that's a good point, Matt. So again, most likely Paul had done the harder work earlier um, when he was there, casting out of the church Hymenaeus and Alexander. And now Timothy is to use the full weight of Paul's apostolic authority in dealing with all of the rest. And so I'll ask the question again, guys. Um, is it really that big of a deal if I don't shepherd my heart? Here's a situation in which the full weight of apostolic authority is being conferred on Timothy precisely because some men didn't shepherd their hearts in the church. Now, Paul's sentence in verses 3 and 4, um, if you were to look at it grammatically, uh, even in the English, it's, it's awkward. It, it makes no sense grammatically. And when, when does grammar go out the window when we write or talk? Passion. Passion concern. Hurry, get this down. It's when your concern for proper grammar is swallowed up by your passion, by your concern for the church and what is dear to your heart. And why is Timothy to stay on in Ephesus? He says in verse 3, so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. That is the near purpose, the immediate purpose or reason that Timothy is to stay there. The simple purpose was simply you stay there and you stop this. You stop this. In other words, it's implying that it's what? It's going on. This teaching is going on, and Timothy needs to be the roadblock. No more. This stops. Now, the word instruct, in, at least in the NAS, so that you may instruct certain men, that's a very, that's a, that's a what does the ESV say? Who's got ESV? In verse um, 3 there, so that you may instruct certain men. Charge is better. Um, the word is actually command. You command them to stop. I don't know why they softened it with the word instruct, at least in the NAS. It's a military term. It is a legal term. It's a military command or an official legal summons to a court. In other words, you are commanded to show up to this court, and it is not optional. You must be there. That's the idea. So Timothy is to stand before the church as a general or like a judge and officially and authoritatively stop, command these men who have strayed at their heart level to stop their teaching. What are they teaching? It says, instruct them to not teach strange doctrines. You know, strange, like, like UFO strange. Like, like, um... It's that guy on TV. What guy? Uh, yeah. That's strange. You know what else is strange? Spontaneous combustion. That's strange. I had a ninth grade teacher who would read to us from the Enquirer on Friday morning. That's strange. That's strange too. Crop circles are strange. Yeah. Um, is, that what, is that what's going on in Ephesus? The guys are teaching wacko, weird stuff. That's what means, when we think of strange, we think of stuff like that. Literally what it means, uh, the word strange, is just another. Another teaching. Another teaching. Which implies 
that there is already in the early church a ground floor standard that is recognizable so that when somebody comes and teaches another kind of teaching, it's strange. And what is that ground floor teaching? Yeah. Apostolic doctrine and the gospel. Yeah, Bob. If you're looking at churches today and you <coughs> recognize false teaching going on in your church, how do you how do you make the body aware of that? Yeah. That's the question. I haven't been a church like that. Yeah. Eventually uh, just had to leave the church. Yeah. It, it was a, it, it's heartbreaking. It is. What um you got any ideas of what to do? Well, I didn't. The part that was scary was I was the worship leader, so I was up in the front mm. watching everybody respond. Ugh. My wife was here, and everybody else was eating it up. And, what, and the false teaching was not everything in the Bible is true. Yeah, that's another kind of teaching. So, yeah another of a different kind and that's the idea here there's there's words for another two different words in the Greek another of a similar kind and another of a different kind completely and that's this um, this is another of a different kind and yeah I mean when you're in that situation your best bet is if you can to sit with your leadership and ask them about it open a Bible and if they won't listen um, you know I would I wouldn't hesitate to say it's time to go and leave the best way you can and um, yeah it's, 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 a, it's a sad thing let, let, me, let me push on with this just a little bit because I, I think we need to have strangeness redefined and I want you to see what Paul's view of strangeness is and what is strange in God's mind needs to become what is strange in your mind and what is strange in our minds not, might, might not be what God thinks is strange although I, I'm pretty sure he thinks crop circles are strange too but um, Here's what's strange in God's mind. Whatever is not the gospel. That is strange to God. His gospel is the standard and the sound doctrine that grows out of it for the churches. That's what is the standard. That is what is normal. Anything outside of the gospel anything outside of the sound doctrine and the instruction that Paul gave to the churches from that is strange. I want to tend to classify something as strange by the bizarreness of it compared to other things. And that's the wrong standard. You don't compare that way. The standard for strangeness is rooted in the gospel, guys. Paul preached Christ and him crucified and these men were teaching something else and he says it's strange penal substitutionary atonement a penalty is there it must be met it must be paid by a substitute not you you can't pay it he must bear the penalty and atone for that penalty for you he must bear away your sin. He must bear away your guilt. He must bear away the wrath of God. That is the standard. Teach anything else outside of that, and in God's mind, that's strange. It's not strange, whacked out, weird stuff. 
like we might tend to think of, it's just a centimeter off that, a millimeter off. A four-point calendar? <laughs> I, don't know if I, I don't know if I would go there. I don't know if I would go there. Yeah. But notice what else Paul says. There's, there's another part to this. So that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, and now verse 4, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. <coughs> the short answer for what I think this is, and there's a lot of um, debate on what this means. We're not really sure what it means. But the short answer for what I think is going on is this. I don't think he's talking about two different things going on here, you know, that they're teaching myths, and then they're teaching also endless genealogies. I think the two go together, meaning myths that are probably based on people and genealogies. Now, where would these guys in this day find in a context genealogies? Abraham. And where the sons of Abraham. And what Abraham is found in what part of the Old Testament? What they would have called yeah. the law. Pentateuch. Um, and that we know in a context that they want to be teachers of the law. Right? So these men were paying attention to, they were occupying themselves with made up stories, we think, that were tied to genealogies, most likely in the Pentateuch and the law. It, it was, that was their happy hunting ground for conjecture. Okay? And he calls them endless, and endless is over both of them. It's not just endless genealogies or endless um, myths. It's, or it's endless myths and genealogies. You, put the, you can put the word endless in front of myths and genealogies. Um, they were searching out. They were on a quest for more and more and more of these fancy stories spun from Scripture names, maybe lists of ancestors that were most likely amplified, possibly even names of wives that were invented because when you look at the genealogies, most of the time the women are left out. And so they might have started to insert names, and I'll, and I'll tell you why here in just a second. Um, and, and so we think that as they inserted names, they, they spun allegory off of it, allegorical <coughs> stories based on that. Go to chapter 4, verse 7. Here's why we think that that might be a possibility. Have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. We think that there was going on among the women in the church, because these teachers opened the door for it, women to sit around and go, well, let me tell you about so-and-so's wife. That's not listed but in the genealogy, but they think that there's, you know, look, these are guys trying to connect dots, and so we don't know. And you know, I'm not going to die on that hill, but I, I just think it's very interesting what might be going on. So get this. The strange doctrine which was outside of the gospel of Paul, was rooted in which book? Guys, just let that sink in. That which was strange to Paul and to God, because it was outside of the gospel, was found in what book? What, were God, what book were they going to? The Bible! The Bible! That's stunning. That should be shocking. It should be alarming. 
They came to the word of God, but they didn't get the God of the word. It's not enough, guys, to just read your Bible. It's not enough for you to just study the Bible. You must make sure that you are meeting with the God of that Bible when you are in that Bible. Because these men, they were using the right book, but drawing the wrong conclusions from the right book. And they were propagating it to the church. They were teaching it. And Paul says, stop them! Don't let that happen! These men can't teach what they're teaching. The Bible cannot be used this way. That public display of their hermeneutic cannot be displayed to the body and encourage the body to do that themselves. Evidently, the old women were already doing it. So think on this. The focus in this passage here is on church leadership, right? The focus is on church leadership who failed to shepherd their hearts. The focus here is on church leadership who failed to shepherd their own hearts, and they were using the Bible to teach. So the focus in this passage is on church leadership who failed to shepherd their hearts, and they were using the Bible, but they were teaching false doctrine. And we'll come back to this for some more thought a little bit later. Mike. Um, so I'm just kind of curious. Like Titus says, rejected facts of command after first and second warning. Later it says they don't receive any against an elder comes on the basis of two or three witnesses. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're going through the process is before the Matthew, but do you go through that even like the whole church knows? Like these people are teaching heresy. Like are you still going one real quick? Hey, you need to stop. You're not going to listen. Here's two more. And then you present mm-hmm. them for the church and then you cast them out? Or is it like immediately? Um, I'm just kind of curious like how that would work out leadership-wise, how they would, how they would address that. I th- that's a good question. And I think there's probably, I, I think Paul's example here is, is probably this, that if a man is leading the church, if he is teaching the church in a position of teaching, and he is teaching false doctrine, here's how the Apostle Paul handles it. I think he handled it quickly, and I think he handled it decisively. Um, does do we? I, I can guarantee it. Paul probably sat with him alone first. Yeah, okay. Did he let that go on for months? No, I don't think so. And if there was not a, um, it was so. This is where you look, and, and and for the most part, when regular church discipline goes on, it's taking place every day in the body, right? right? Brother to brother, we are admonishing <coughs> one another when we see one another sin. Okay. The effects of that, those kinds of sins on the whole rest of the body, in all honesty, it, for most kinds of situations, is probably minimal. A guy who's standing in front and who's teaching everything, his sin is not minimal. And so you're always weighing, and church discipline, church restoration, in Matthew 18, has um, always care, holds those two things in, in mind. I'm concerned about you, brother. I want you to be where you, where you should be, where God has placed you in the gospel. And it appears you're not living in accordance with that. But I have something in my hand over here I'm concerned about too. But right now, I'm, this is where I'm mostly concerned. But I'm concerned about the church. You, you refuse to listen. 
you refuse to listen, you refuse to listen, you refuse to listen, you refuse to listen, the church has to be protected from you. You're out. False teacher is probably more like this. I'm concerned about you, brother. Um, are you going to listen? No. Quicker. Yeah. The church must be spared from what you are becoming. And Paul even says, you know, I turn them over to Satan so that maybe God might, you know, do what God can yeah. do even through that. Um, so I think, it's, I think it's a much quicker process. And I think that's why you see the factious man being warned briefly. That's not completely um, in discord with Matthew 18, but it's accelerated. Yeah. Um, now notice Paul's tactic here. Verse, uh, this is very interesting. What does he say in verse 3? So that you may instruct certain men. Certain men. And let them look at verse 6. For some men. I think this is very interesting. He's being very anonymous, isn't he? In verses 3 to 7. Very anonymous. Uh, but was he anonymous in verse 19 and 20? No. So prior to this time, he was very specific and he was naming names. But now, as he writes, he's not naming any other names. He's just saying certain men, some men. What's going on? I think Paul was specific when he was present. And then later he was willing to wait to name more names. <clears throat> Most likely... Hymenaeus and Alexander are probably the ringleaders. And now he is being gracious through Timothy to not name the other names. And I think that's gracious to them to give them a chance without public humiliation. It's very gracious and yet it is very firm. So the certain men or the some men, they would feel this weight knowing that Timothy may go public on them next if they continue down the road. Um, hopefully it's a wake-up call to them. So if there was a nearer purpose, an immediate purpose for Timothy to stay on in Ephesus, it was to, at the end of verse 3 and 4, um, instruct certain men, command certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. There is then also an ultimate purpose or an ultimate reason for Timothy to stay there, and that's the, the last part of verse 4, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. And that is a a classic Pauline mouthful, right? This is the way he talks. Um, this is the ultimate reason he is to stay there. All the wrong things are coming out of these guys, uh, out of their teaching, and the right thing is not coming out of their teaching. Yes, bad stuff coming out, good stuff isn't being pointed to. Uh, he says here, this gives rise, in verse 4, to mere speculation. Um, this is the wrong thing that's coming out of their teaching. Guys are just speculating. The, the church is speculating. The body of Christ is continually speculating about unimportant matters. And the word of God is open. Do you get this? The Bible is being opened before them. And they're speculating all the time about all the kinds of wrong things. And the right thing is being ignored. Which is the right thing that's being ignored in verse 4? It's rather than uh, furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. Then we have to come back to the administration of God. Whenever you see that word administration, 
this is what I think. Uh, think house law. Um, the house law of God. The house rules of God. It's two words put together. The word house and, and, and rule or law. And so what Paul is saying when he says administration is he's saying there's a way that in this house, this church, we're supposed to conduct one another. Thankfully, we have the New Testament and all of his other letters to help us see what that conduct is that he's prescribed for us, right? And he was giving that to Timothy orally all the time. And he's saying, look, there's an administration of God. There's a house law that belongs to God for us. That's the way this household operates. His, it's his arrangements of how people get saved into his household. That's the gospel. And then there's instruction about how then we are to live on the basis of the salvation we've been given. Well, what advances and promotes all of that? It's, it's the gospel. It's the gospel. And so this is why Timothy needs to stay on in Ephesus. This is why he has to stop their teaching. All of the wrong things are coming out. You've got a church that's sitting around speculating about weird stuff. And more importantly, the church is not coming to grips with the rules of the house of how we are to live with one another instead. And that's what Paul was doing in Ephesians, right? Here's all of the grace principles that we, what we stand on in the salvation. And now here's how we must conduct ourselves toward one another. Administration of God. This is the house law of God. It's the gospel and how we are to live in regards to one another. Timothy needs to stay so that that comes out and so that speculating stops. Okay? Stop their teaching. Second point. Second tactical maneuver. Stress the goal. Only the gospel can produce, which is love. This is how he's going to stop what's going on there and rescue the church. He needs to also stress the goal only the gospel can produce. Let's take a five-minute break, guys, and we'll come back and we'll finish this up, okay? Take five minutes. All right, we're on uh, point number two. Not only is Timothy supposed to stop, right, the, he needs to stop the teaching of the heart strayers. Paul's concerned in verse five that he stress the goal, the right goal. This is what's being neglected. So the right thing has to be stressed, and it's, it's the, the thing that only the gospel can produce, and it's, it's love. Verse 5 starts with the word but, and that is carries full adversative force, meaning Paul is now, he's been going down one direction, and now he wants to contrast strongly. Their teaching uh, is, is, is strange doctrine. It, 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 they're paying attention to myths and endless genealogies, and the fruit that rises out of that is in the body is just mere speculation. Now, in strong contrast, the goal of our instruction? Love. Love in the body. That's what comes out. Paul is contrasting the results of their false teaching with the results of his teaching in the gospel, in Timothy's in the gospel. A strong contrast of outcomes or goals takes place. The goal of our instruction is love. And that word instruction here is the noun form of the verb up in verse 3. If you notice in verse 3, the word instruct is a verb. You may instruct. In verse 5, <clears throat> instruction. Same 
um, word in a verb form and a noun form. Um, and so it carries the same kind of weight. Command. The command, the weight. This is not optional, this command, this instruction. This command is what must be done. It is an instruction that must be heeded. And here's what Paul's saying. In stopping the false teaching of the heart strayers, Paul's saying this. Paul's purpose is to bring the church back to what? Love. They haven't been there as a church lately. And what, is, what does John say about them in Revelation 3? I love what God has done in terms of giving us Ephesians, giving us First and Second Timothy, where Timothy was in Ephesus, and then it's mentioned again in Revelation. It's a, it's a, what a gift from God to give us windows into a, a church through the years. And Acts too. And Acts too, even before that. Thank you, John. It's great. We get the beginning. We get the the warning that comes kind of in the middle. We get a letter that's kind of probably at the apex of where they're at with Ephesians, you get, oh no, things are going downhill, and, and whatnot. Happy go. About the strange teachings? Yes. Uh, you know that they're, they're using the Old Testament, and they come up with a different kind of interpretation. Probably our guess, because they didn't go in detail here, is they try to like separate people out <coughs> just for their own curiosity. I think curious or for their own, like, uh, they use it for their own self-purpose, maybe. Mm, good. But speaking about love, which is the goal, how do you, how can you tell us about somebody who is, uh, we know that, how can you explain somebody who's not a Christian? Do those people can, can, can they demonstrate love? And for the people who are Christian, what's the difference? How can you just teach us a little bit about that? Well, that's a good question. Well, the first thing that comes to my mind is if you're not a Christian, uh, love's not going to be on your mind. Not this kind of love. In the body. So it's, we shouldn't be surprised that if maybe they responded in some way. And, and, and look, we don't, we don't know if they're believers or not. But Paul is treating at least two of them like they're not believers at all. And it, it, we shouldn't be surprised that love was not on their minds. To teach the body how to love. Hymenaeus and Alexander were... Uh, had other things on their minds that they wanted to teach. These kinds of things, most likely. Speculation. So they're not thinking that way. They wouldn't be thinking that we should love God with all of our heart first, and that we should love one another. These two loves are, are one in the same building, off one off of the other. Um, so they wouldn't even be thinking about that kind of love. And, and Paul is trying to rescue the church back towards that. Um, what else are you thinking in regards to that? Any other ideas? I don't know what I'm, I'm thinking is because there's some people that are not Christian, but they're careful. Maybe we can be like, I think they don't put Christ maybe atonement because if maybe that can be a big difference. Yeah. So are you saying that unbelievers they, they can actually show a, a kind of love to one another? Yeah, they can. They can. They don't. They don't like a self self gains. They like to share what they have. Mm -hmm. they, they consider other people. Like, you know. Good. Uh, and then at the same time, but uh, love God. Um, I don't know how the how go, I don't know how yeah. deeper they can go on that and to love one another. But they have <coughs> that kind of thing. But yeah. I think when it came down to, because um, we know according to Corinthians 13, there's a lot of love is defined 
if I never fail, long suffering. I mean, right. you can go. I think there's, there's a gospel right there. I mean, you can see how God reach out and how he forgive and all <coughs> that, that. So I think as somebody who can call it, it's, it's gospel right there. Right. Uh, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, thank you. That, that was helpful explanation. Um, there's no doubt that unbelievers can, can show love. And even if you've got unbelievers who are teaching the church, they might emphasize love. What's the difference between what they're doing and what Paul's talking about? And the primary difference is that Christ is the center of one, and Christ is nowhere to be found in the other. And it's interesting what Jesus does in regards, let's change it, instead of talking about love for a second, let's talk about doing good. Do evil, uh, sorry, I'm giving it all away, the way I'm saying it. Can unbelievers do good? Well, at one level, we would say, no, there's no one good, right? We know that's true. And yet Jesus said, how can you, being evil, do what is good for your children? So Jesus is acknowledging, yeah, there's a good that people do, but I'm still going to call you evil as you do it. So that is not the kind of good that we are called to do in Christ. Okay, so there is a degree of goodness that evil people do to one another. A father doesn't give his child a stone if he asks for a fish, does he? That's good, right? And you being evil, you do that good. Okay? You being evil can exhort people to love. What's the difference? One makes much of Christ and magnifies Christ and reveals him to be the center and the source of that love and the object of that love. Ultimately, the other is bankrupt of Christ. There's a huge difference. And I think that comes out, um, especially over time and in the words and in the deeds, why you really do something. Because, look, when you don't have Christ, the only reason, ultimate reason that you're loving is primarily rooted in self. I'm going to get something from this. Yeah, it becomes motive most of the time. And there are, you know, there's, there's, look, we all know that the right thing to do in the end, all of our movies, not all of them, 99% of our movies go this way. The, the guy who sets himself out and apart from the bad guy who becomes the good guy is the guy who sacrifices himself in the end for, for others. We know that's right. That's still part of the image of God within us that we know that that's right. And unregenerate people can rejoice that somebody would do that in a fallen way. They rejoice. So we know there's something about it, but the problem is we can never escape from our slavery to ourselves. And even when we do then, it's still Christless. It doesn't magnify Christ. It doesn't give evidence from Christ. It doesn't find its source in Christ. It doesn't point people to Christ necessarily. Okay? That's how I would describe the difference. Um, so you have this command. Question? Sorry, I Come was on. just going to... Yeah. Um, also, could you say that it's just a matter of God's grace, general grace towards unbelievers, that since they're made in the image of God, they w- desire to do good even though they're rebelling against God, and so it's kind of an irrational behavior that and sinful behavior. Yeah, it's very interesting. When, when evil people do good, they are being inconsistent with their worldview. Yeah. <laughs> they are. I sat with an agnostic for several years, um, a few years ago. Well, not several years, about a year. And he could not believe that the Bible was a Bible. He could not believe that the God this book revealed was the the real God, and yet every night when he went to bed, he was terrified. 
and he would mock me for my worldview. And one day it dawned on me and I said to him um, at Pita Jungle on Apache, <laughs> I, said, I said, who's the hypocrite? You say there is no God or we can't know him, and yet every night you pray to him to be merciful to you? You're not even consistent with your own worldview, and you mock me? Uh, so, yeah, I mean, people find themselves in strange situations. So, yeah, there's, a, there's something inside us that says, I, I need to do what's right. We know that, right? Romans 2. That's good. Uh, yeah. On that, um, as I was learning a few weeks ago, we talked about how God had created woodwork for us to work in it. Yeah. And I believe that really, like, even the kindness act of love, in either way, is something that God, like, chooses or he created. And it's profitable. Either you are created or not, it's the reality. Mm. You do that way, it can bring peace among other people. Nobody wants to fight. Sometimes we get tired of fighting because you have other priorities. But not because of a pure heart or love. Mm -hmm. You can do that. But if you do that, I do believe that there's a reward. Because you don't have to be a Christian. Yeah, yeah there, there's a sense in which even there's a there's a there's a there's a fallen <coughs> horizontal kind of love that people can show. And it's called love. It's called good. Jesus didn't hesitate to call it good. And there can also be good benefits that come that are fallen and horizontal only. Um, and, and you know what? Which world do you want to live in? I want to live in a world where even evil people do good things to one another. You know, and, and there's a sense of, of God's common grace to the world that there's a sense of this. And societies that really, you know, pray to God that we won't ever actually act on Darwinism. Mm -hmm. yeah. Because the weak won't be here anymore. And there will be no compassion, and there will be no, and, and that's a, a very scary world to live in. The country that did that is held up as the worst country in the history. That's right. Yeah. It, it has a, a, a mark on it. Um, yeah. So, yeah, there, there's, there's good things that even lost should do. There might even be good outcomes that come from it, and um, we shouldn't seek to stop that necessarily because Christ isn't in it. And yet we need to run into those people with the gospel so that they can understand what the goodness of God is. Um, so, yeah. Let's, let's keep going here. Um, the commandment that Paul and Timothy give here in uh, verse 5, it accomplishes the goal that the church is supposed to be after. It's the goal of love. But the other guy's teaching, it doesn't accomplish this goal of love. Speculation is going on, endless speculation, genealogies, endless myths, and speculation just comes out. So their occupation with fables that are probably rooted in genealogies, it was actually blocking love in the church. It was not producing love. Love found no healthy soil to grow in in their teaching. Oh, but silly speculation? blossoming like crazy. <coughs> so it says here, um, the goal of our instruction is love from or out of three things. A pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Pure heart, good conscience, and a sincere faith. The love that is a must for the church, it has its source in a pure heart that is cleansed. 
A heart that is cleansed. A pure heart. That's what it is mean here. A, a heart that has been cleansed. What cleanses the heart? The gospel. The gospel is what comes and cleanses the heart so that love will spring forth from it. The love that is a must for this church has its source also then in a good conscience. Well, what can make your conscience good? What can make your conscience operate the way that it's supposed to operate? It's the gospel. The gospel is what can make your conscience operate the way it's supposed to. You know what the, your conscience is. It's, for instance, it's when the known standard in your conscience is violated. The conscience is what reacts to that to accuse you, to bring guilt on you in your mind. Guilt complex. Because you knew what was right, and what? You didn't do it. So your conscience condemns you. Or, positively speaking, you know what is right, and you did the right thing, and your conscience affirms you in that. There's only one thing that can make that conscience operate the way that it's supposed to, under the right standard, the right ultimate standard, and that is the gospel. Because look, evil men have a conscience. Fallen, wicked, evil men have a conscience. And they might even set up standards for good and wrong and good and evil in their lives. And their conscience will sometimes condemn them for them not living to their own standard. So they might be affirmed by their conscience and still go to hell. And there's only one thing that will make their conscience operate on the level that it's supposed to operate on. And that is the gospel must come, cleanse the heart, and make the conscience, what? Good. Good and love then flows out of that kind of a, out of a conscience. Love will come also out of a sincere faith, which means unhypocritical. Well, what can make um, trust genuine? Genuine, so that love would spring forth from it. There's only one thing that makes faith genuine faith, and that is the gospel. Um, the grace of God actually gives faith, right? So hypocrisy and doubt gets put on Christ so that he can give sincerity of faith. Badness and evil gets put on Christ so that a good conscience can be given. Impurity gets put on Christ so that pure hearts can be given. Understand? I mean, this is why the, the atonement and is at the center of everything in the Christian life because love then flows out of that good heart. It flows out of the pure heart. It flows out of the good conscience. It flows out of a sincere faith. Verse 5. The commandment here that Paul has in view, I think, is the commandment of the gospel. That the charge of the gospel. If, if the goal of Paul's command is love that has its source in these things, then Paul's command is very interested and must be connected to the gospel because only the gospel can produce these things. You don't get a good heart or a pure heart, you don't get a good conscience, you don't get a sincere faith apart from the gospel. The gospel is what turns all these things upside right for the first time. So then everything inside you, this is Paul's way of being redundant about the very core of you. Let me talk about your heart. Let me talk about it a different way, your conscience. Let me talk about, talk about your faith, your trust. All of that becomes a fertile soil that bears an abundant harvest of love for people and for God. 
And what a contrast. The whole point is, but, verse 5, contrast. Love isn't coming from these guys in you. So stop the teaching and stress the gospel and the love that comes from it. Last tactical maneuver, number three. Spot the character of the heart strayers. He goes on now to describe these guys. And this is what haunts me the most as an elder, as a pastor, as a leader in the church. Um, and I want you guys to feel these words come close to you um, and to touch your heart. Not for the purpose of bringing you to despair, guys. Okay? But I want the Holy Spirit to use his word in you and in me to awaken us and to maybe make some, some nerves raw for a while so that we feel the danger of not shepherding our hearts. Okay? Feel this. Don't numb yourself to this. Some men straying from these things, verse 6. Now, these things are the pure heart, the good conscience, and the sincere faith. And what I want to stress, obviously, this morning with you guys is the pure heart. They deviated from their oversight of their own hearts. They failed to look at their own hearts. They strayed. And as a result, they turned off the track instead to a discussion that bore no fruit in the church. This is not a detour that they have taken. They're all the way at the dead end. These false teachers, they didn't go bad first and most. Get this, this is, this is shocking. These guys didn't go bad primarily because they sat under wicked, perverted seminary professors from a liberal seminary. They didn't. These false teachers went the wrong direction primarily because what? They did not shepherd their own hearts. They strayed. Heresy, this is, the, this is the most, this is a shocking thought. Heresy and false teaching finds its roots in a neglected heart. Heresy and false teaching finds its roots in a neglected heart. Here's the devil's tactical maneuver. We're talking about Paul's tactical maneuvers. Here's the devil's tactical maneuver. How can I get false teaching into this church? How can I do it? Oh, look at that perfect heart over there for me. He hasn't paid attention to it for weeks, months. So what does this say then about how to maintain a healthy and straight course for your life and for those people around you? Guys, shepherd your heart. Watch it. And the gospel primarily has to be in view with your heart. A day came for these Godly spiritual men, when they began to swerve away, they at least appeared to be such, they swerved away from the gospel and they turned aside to other things, not in another book, but in the book. And they opened the book. And this happened because they didn't pay attention to their hearts. Go to chapter 4, verse 16. Look what he's going to say to Timothy. Timothy. Pay attention to yourself. That's exactly what he said to the guys on the beach. Be on guard for yourselves. Pay close attention to yourself and what? Your teaching. Because if you're paying close attention to yourself, your teaching will be right. If you're shepherding your heart, you'll interact with the Word of God the right way. 
If you're not paying attention to yourself, your teaching is going way off track. That's terrifying. Here's what I think when I sit at an elder meeting at Grace Bible Church. The greatest enemy at the table is not the guy sitting next to me in an elder meeting. But rather, it's me when I fail to shepherd my heart. The greatest threat to the elder board is me when I don't shepherd my heart. Look at these guys back in chapter 1, verse 7. Wanting to be teachers of the law. They are resolving in their hearts to teach Mosaic law. Most likely then, I think these guys are probably Jewish converts who are, who are probably elders, who are drawn to Mosaic law. They do not, in 1 Timothy, appear to be full-on Judaizers like the guys in Galatians, uh, when Paul writes Galatians. They don't appear to be at that point. Um, there's, there's, there's no um, evidence in 1 Timothy of works righteousness kinds of thinking going on. And this doesn't seem to be in view in Ephesus. What's in view in Ephesus is just a crazy use of Mosaic law to get to myths that are bound up in genealogies which cause the body of Christ to speculate, not love. And look at these poor fools in verse 7. They don't understand what they're saying. That means they're ignorant. And they make confident assertions about the matters that they're teaching. They're proclaiming their teaching with complete and total confidence. They are. And with complete and total ignorance as they teach with confidence. They're devoted to their teaching. They're devoted to their preaching with dogmatic authority. They are confident and they are completely wrong. They don't even know it. You know, it's bad enough to be ignorant, isn't it? It's bad enough to not know, to be dogmatic in your ignorance. And Timothy and the church must be able to spot such men. Why? Because their own hearts missed the gospel, because they didn't bring the gospel to their own hearts. And as a result, all they could do, get this, all they could do was wean the hearts of others off and away from the gospel too. Because that's where they were. That was the only place they could lead the church, is away from the gospel and the fruit of the gospel, which is love. So the church has become, in Ephesus, empty of love, but man, is it full of speculation. They can speculate about Pentateuchal issues all over the place. Thanks. This may be the most idiotic question. It will fit well here with us. <laughs> Believers or unbelievers? Yeah. I don't think we, I think Paul is giving them the benefit of the doubt in verses 3 to 7. I don't think he's giving the benefit of the doubt anymore to Hymenaeus and Alexander. They are shipwrecked in regards to their faith. And they have been turned over to Satan so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. Um, but I think Paul is being gracious towards these men at this point. It does not look good for them. But I think there's a degree of Paul holding out hope that if Timothy, if you stop them and you stress the right thing and you can spot their character, there might be a hope for them. There might be hope for them. Um, but it's, it is not a good situation there. Yes? This might be the least relevant question. Of and that will fit well here too. Um, do you think the Alexander in um, First Timothy... Uh, 
at the end of chapter 120 is the same Alexander as in 2 Timothy 4, 14. The coppersmith? Alexander the coppersmith. Alexander probably not an uncommon name at the time. Yeah. You know, um, I see that my Bible has linked that to over to 2 Timothy 4, 14 and the cross-referencing. I don't know. I'd have to check that out. That's a good question. I haven't been inclined to think that, but I, I don't know why I would lean to that. Would, did you believe, was Timothy still at Ephesus in 2 Timothy and Paul's reference? I, I think so. I don't think there was a great deal of time between Paul's first imprisonment and the second one. I think there was relatively a short period of time, and I think he's I think he's still there. In fact, I checked that this week. To, I wanted to make sure, and there was no indication from any other um, resources that I went to or sources that I went to that say that he's not there anymore. Um, so. This Alexander is mentioned after Paul talks about Carpus and Troas. Hmm. He says, you know, Carpus and Troas, and then he mentions the Alexander. So it might be in a different setting. I don't know. Do any of you have study, study Bibles that say something about that? Um, I think what study Bible says. It's not the same? It links them. It says it may be, um, and it says it didn't mean much harm, so it could be. There could be some revenge going yeah. on. Who knows? Yeah. Let's talk, let's talk a little bit about application briefly. I just have two questions for you. The first one, and I don't remember if I put this on your notes on the back side. Yeah. Uh, three questions for you, actually, don't I? Um, number one, are you stressing the gospel in your own life, guys? That's, you know, that's, what, that's what Paul is trying to do with Timothy. Is he saying stress the gospel? And... Um, you know, that's that's the first application. Where's that coming from? It's from the door, isn't it? Yeah. Um, stress the gospel uh, in your own life. Are you doing that? Um, this is where the gospel needs to have a central platform in your life from which it um, can produce love. That's, that's going to be the outcome. If the gospel's in your life, uh, you're going to see fruit called love that will come from your life. In that. So you must be, when you shepherd your heart to the word of God, you know, you're, you're looking for the gospel, and you're wanting to bring that nearer to your heart. Um, second question, can you spot anything alarming concerning your own character? Can you spot anything alarming? And you say, well, well I don't know. What do you mean? Well, how about tendency to stray? Guys, all of it, because you have fallen flesh on you and in you, and because you have indwelling sin in you, you are a strayer. That's just what you are in the flesh. You will never not roll downhill in the flesh. But, but there is something that opposes your flesh in you if you are a Christian. The Holy Spirit. For these are in opposition to one another, Paul says. Right? Galatians 5, 16 to 18. You have something that's in opposition to your flesh. I, was, I think on this whenever I meditate on, on Galatians 5, 16 to 18. I can remember very well in my life when there was no opposition to my flesh within me. I, I did everything my flesh wanted to do. I was enslaved to it. It's all I could do. But now, by God's grace, there's, there's opposition to my flesh within. I didn't do it. I didn't bring it about by works. God did it by grace. You will always. Your flesh has not changed. Your heart has been changed. Your mind can be renewed. But your flesh has not changed. In fact, I want to show you something that we're going to get to in Ephesians 4. Go to Ephesians 4 real quick. We're going to get there... Um, Probably not for maybe a month or so, but Ephesians 4, verse, where is it? Verse 22. Oh, this is just, this drives me crazy about me. 
in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self. Now he's going to describe the old self, the old man, the fallen nature. It's being corrupted. It doesn't say it was corrupted. It doesn't say it's in this state of corruption. It is continually being corrupted. My flesh today is worse than it was 25 years ago when I came to Christ. It's worse today. Yours is worse today than it was yesterday. Why? Because it's like rotten meat sitting on a counter. It's only going to get worse. Oh my goodness, guys, shepherd your heart. Do you understand what will happen if you don't? Do you get it? It's going to get worse. Um, so recognize this tendency in you that you will stray from the gospel. You will, you will, you just will. That's what we do in this fallen frame that we have. But praise God, there is something powerful within us that is greater than our sin. It is the Holy Spirit. And we have the word of God that can come and, and be powerful in our lives. The gospel continues to be powerful to help us. Um, be able to spot what is bad character in us and can lead us to the gospel again and again. It should be a concern to you anytime you play leapfrog, anytime you stray, watch for that. And then just live with the, you need to come to grips with the reality. That's what you're going to do. Don't, don't measure, don't set this standard for yourself. Spiritual maturity means that I will, n that, that is perfection. I will never sin with this kind of thing again ever. You know what spiritual maturity is, actually, I think? I think spiritual maturity is recognizing that I have to constantly discipline myself with the gospel, bring that to my life. And yes, that begins to go away over time. But, but the idea that, it's like what Piper says. I feel like every morning I have to get saved all over again. I equate sp spirituality with... Um, I don't know, maybe I'll, I, won't, I won't ever sin again. Not sometimes, you know, I know it's ridiculous. But I wouldn't think that a mature spiritual man would say, I feel like I need to get saved every morning. Come on, that's John Piper. Spiritual men don't say that kind of thing, do they? Yeah, they do. Because they recognize that their flesh is being corrupted. In accordance with the standard, there's a standard. According to the lusts of deceit. In chapter 4, verse 22. My goodness, guys, spot. That, that should be alarming to you anytime you play leapfrog. You'll never graduate from this discipline of shepherding your heart. And then how should we think about accountability? Because, um, and I wanted to address this this morning because this comes up a, a lot. I think accountability is probably one of the first things we run to with um, when we feel that we're caught in sin somehow. And what we need is we need to bring external, you know, around us and under us and over us. Um, parameters on us, and and I think we I think we've missed it with accountability. Um, a, a couple of things for you here, maybe to to think about. Take your accountability with one another, and always push it back to the heart, and push accountability into the gospel. Okay, you say, well, what do you mean by that? Here's what your first accountability question should be. Uh, let me say what it shouldn't be, because that's the way my mind works. Your first accountability question with your partner should not be, um, what websites were you on this week? That is not the right question to ask first. The right question to ask first is, tell me about how you preached the gospel to yourself this week. That's just what we do. We preach the gospel to our hearts over and over and 
over and over. We never stop. We keep the gospel. And, and I'll tell you what, if, if a guy says, you know, on, on Monday, these are the four passages that I meditated on, on the gospel. And on Tuesday, these are the four passages that I meditated on in the gospel. And then on Wednesday, I blew it. But Thursday and Friday was really good. Um, that's shepherding that guy and, and helping him and discipling him. That you, you do that one way. If another guy goes, I wasn't in my Bible all week thinking about the gospel. You know, I understand why you've been on the website you've been on, guys. I really do. So push everything back into the heart and into the gospel. Asking one another, did you read your Bible this week, doesn't go far enough. These guys were in the Word of God in Ephesus. They were in the Word of God and their hearts were far away from purity. Do you get it? You can't ask that question merely. You have to mean something more and you need to beef that question up. Tell me about the condition and the attitude and the aim of your heart as you read the Bible. Oh my goodness, that gets to things that you got to get to. Do you understand? Accountability needs to be strengthened and pushed back into the heart and into the gospel. Or how about this question? How's your heart's desire to meet with God when you read? What's the desire of your heart when you meet with God to read? So aim for gospel-centered, heart-centered accountability in particular. The best thing you could go to an accountability partner and, and ask him to do is this. Say, will you ask me if I'm preaching the gospel to myself? Will you ask me how I'm doing and applying the gospel to my life when I sin? And then will you also ask me every week, every day, every whenever we talk, how I'm doing in applying the gospel to my life even when I have great success? But it's not just when we sin, it's, it's when we're being obedient and when success is coming, spiritual success, because the gospel is the only thing that gave you a platform to do it. And so let's give thanks to God. Let's glory in God for what success has come. And the gospel is what enables you to do that. We need to be men who are holding ourselves accountable in the right ways. Okay? So push accountability into the gospel. Push it into the heart. All right? All right. Any closing thoughts or comments as we wrap that up and take some time in small group? Happy to go. So in a small group, we had discussion about uh, a friend has a pastor. Uh, and the pastor was saying that, are we given a, a pure heart, a new heart, as uh, we were born again as Christians? And he, this pastor believed that uh, as we are Christian, we have a new heart. Yes. But we, you know, my friend Tyler, we believe that our heart is still, as you're saying, and it's still, it's not, I don't want to say it's not, it's not pure, really. We have things that, so that's all we need to keep feeding our heart. So that sounds like a strange, yeah. yeah there's, there, that's a good question, and I've, I've, I've wrestled with this in my own mind. And, and the, the promise of the new covenant is that he gives a new heart. <coughs> And there's no doubt that um, what Christ accomplished at the cross is giving to us a new heart. We have to qualify what, what is meant by that also. Um, because though there is a new man, a new creature in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17, uh, we are still housed in the flesh, and indwelling sin is still there, and our minds can still be tainted, um, and our hearts can still be led astray can become impure. So get this, we have a new heart, but we can stray from it. 
not lose it, not lose our salvation, but there is a sense in which a new heart has come. That is a true statement. But if by that I mean I no longer sin, I am completely against what the New Testament teaches. Um, I have a new condition that has been given to me in the gospel, right? But I still have the old condition, too, that I am commanded to lay aside. And for whatever reason, in the wisdom of God, he determined that this time that we live in, from the belief in the cross to glory when it comes, we are to live wrestling against these two conditions. Somehow, that brings him glory. Would I have picked to do it that way? Probably not. <laughs> and I'm glad I'm not the one who's in charge of picking the way it is. This is the way that he does it. Every day, we are left in a dependent place on God to depend on him to fight against sin with a new heart. We, we can't even begin to fight against the flesh if we ha don't have the new heart, if we don't have the new creation, um, if we haven't been created in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 2.10 for good works. We can't even begin to. But just because we've been given it doesn't mean that we will no longer struggle with sin. The new heart still has to wrestle with sin in the, in the, in the old man. So, yeah. Hang on to these. Let's do this. Um, Matt, our group will go up in the choir loft. We're rehearsing a piece that I think you guys will like tomorrow. <laughs> um, somebody else can go down. You guys can go these other ones. Let's see. John, why don't you go to the choir room? Last one on the, right. the last one on the right down there, Mary, if you guys would take the library. Okay. So let's maybe do this first. Take all of your stuff at the table and carry it down to your room and put it, and then come back and I'll help us change the room out and we'll spend just a few minutes in the small group, okay? Yeah.